Morning. I want to open with Matthew 6, 1 through 14. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corner, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your interroom. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for the many words. So do, need, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can just come to you humbly, Lord, that uh, pray, Lord, and ask you for your blessing during this time, Lord, as we explore and to read your word, dear Father, as this is an extension of our, our worship, Lord, to you, Father. May, may it be so, Lord. May we do it, Lord, in honor and glory to you, Father. Lord, may any distractions be, be held back, dear Father, and may anything that uh, that is not of you, Father, may it be burned up and, and blown away in the wind, Lord, like chaff. And Lord, again, we ask that you would honor, Lord, and that you would, uh, Lord, that you would give understanding, Lord, to your people, Lord. And Lord, may you be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, Today we're wrapping up our series on prayer, and um, and as we've taken time to labor over the Lord's Prayer as His example and, and model for us, in this we learn where to focus our minds and hearts as we pray, and largely from the principal side of things, but there is much yet to be said and considered from the practical application of our daily lives. And, you know, I, I as I put this together, even... Even up to the very moment I step up here, I, I sit here and I wonder, you know, is there anything that I'm, I'm leaving on the table, so to speak? Is there anything that I have glossed, uh, glossed over that I should have spent more time in? Or are there things that I spent too much time in I should have been focused on other things? And all I can do is just trust the Spirit. That's all I can do as, as we continue into this and, uh, and, again, wrap this up today. But fortunately, <laughs> you know, uh, there's many more scripture for us to study as we go into Galatians next. Um, there's a tremendous amount of wealth of, of information there as well. So I just trust the Lord that um, and, and, and believe that I have been faithful and, and obedient to Him in, in these things. And I'm thankful for it. So <clears throat> as we walk through several aspects of our, our prayer life and consider the virtue of powerful prayer, as I started this series, 
I noted what seems to be among the most popular subjects of prayer books. You know, if you go online and look at prayer books and things like that, is this idea of powerful prayer, people searching and looking for books about how to make prayer more powerful and powerful prayer. And so we're going to consider this today. So, but just as a spoiler, um, I don't know what stance all these authors necessarily wrote these books to be. That's, that's not the point. I don't, don't really care about that. I don't know what, what, uh, what they said about the subject or whatever else, but regardless of that, what these people may have found in these books, I suspect most people are reaching out for them, reaching out for these books and, and digging and trying to, to learn more about powerful prayer is that they're looking for ways to make what they want to happen through these powerful prayers. In other words, I have a desire to see certain things happen, and so I'm trying to figure out how to make my prayers more powerful so that I can make my desires become real through these more powerful prayers. So let me start by saying, and again, a little bit of a spoiler, powerful prayer is not measured by how effectively we can move the hand of God. That is not what we are measuring. Or even if we are certain, even if we are certain, it is a godly thing that we seek. Rather, how well we align ourselves with the heart and will of God in obedient and faithful prayer in seeking God's face. To seek God's face is to seek His heart, which will, of course, reveal His, His will to us. So we'll go back to our opening scripture there, Matthew 6, and I'm going to look at specifically 5 through 6. When you pray, you are not to be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corner, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full, but you, when you pray, go into your room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, I had actually had this question just this past week. Are we to only ever pray in private? Is that the only place that, that, that this is telling us? Is that what this is telling us? You should only pray in private. Should we consider this text to say that we should have never to pray out loud in, in front of a group or, or around people or on the street or whatever. Is doing so sin or, of course, then we have to worry about what is corporate prayer should be looking like in light of this. So let's consider the subject of the verse. Let's just clarify this, this scripture altogether. What does he say not to pray like? Hypocrites. Why? <clears throat> and not to pray like hypocrites. And who are they? What is the word hypocrite making reference to specifically? We have to be very specific about these things. Now, the Greek word is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll spell it for you, H-U-P-O-K-R-I-T-E-S. And this word, the Greek word here, originally referred to actors or stage performers, people who would often like wear a mask, go, we all know what actors are and stage performers are. There's someone who is pretending to be something or someone else, right? So it's a pretty easy thing to understand. There's someone playing out a role, pretending to be something or someone else, and Jesus often used this to refer to religious leaders, and in particular, the Pharisees, who often did the right thing for the wrong reason, right? As an example, they would, and we had this example just before that, was that they would often give to the poor, which is a right and good thing to do, but they didn't do it for the sake of piety. That means 
for at least what the scriptures commanded them to do, or even out of the love for the poor, but they would, but rather they would do it so they would gain some sort of recognition and receive praise. And so they would appear pious. And as it points out in verse 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. They purposefully place themselves on display for all to see. Praise is their reward, and the Lord makes it clear is all the reward they'll ever get. But I got to be make it very clear. This does not give us the okay to be closet Christians, right? This doesn't mean we're not supposed to display things. It's not mean we're not supposed to be out on the street corner and in the public square praying, right? Or certainly not in corporate prayer or group prayer and these sort of things. And we see the same instruction when it comes to fasting. It's the same, it's the same attitude. It's, it's about intention and things like that. So whenever you fast, you won't have the scripture up here, by the way. I'm sorry I didn't give you this one. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. There again, there's those hypocrites. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your feet so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you so we haven't spoken a whole lot about fasting and, and what is fasting well fasting is denying yourself some sort of physical need generally we talk about you know fasting food and water or food and drink and these sort of things right we have of course the example of jesus in the wilderness fasting and we have Many examples of fasting. So what, what, what is the point of fasting? What, what are we talking about? And why, is it have, why does it have its significance? Well, what is one of the things that separates us from the rest of creation, in particular the animals and, and things like that, right? Is what is something that we always constantly say that we are to be doing as Christians? That is what? Dying to self, isn't it? We're supposed to be dying to self. We are supposed to be neglecting the flesh. We're supposed to tell the flesh, shut up, sit down. I need to worry about this right now. So when we fast, we are simply going against this, this ingrained, instinctive thing to eat or to drink or to satisfy physical hunger and physical need and pushing it aside is exercising the discipline to do that, but also obedience because we are told to do this. We're instructed in Scripture to fast from time to time. We are supposed to spend times in fasting. In fact, there's, there are times when we, we're digging into prayer. We're going to get into about praying with expectation, these sort of things. There's times when we, we dig into these sort of things and, and we don't see things moving. And so that is when we sometimes will say, I need to spend some time fasting. I need to get rid of all of the physical distractions and all these sort of things, and I need to focus right here. You say, well, <laughs> well, you know, going a day or two without fasting. I have blood sugar problems. I have these kinds of things, you know. Well, you know, fasting doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, skipping entire days on end of meals. It can be skipping a specific meal or a range of meals. We can still have something to nourish ourselves, right? You say, well, I don't have time to pray. Well, you have time to eat, don't you? Well, pick a time. Skip the meal. Pray instead. Right? So remove something that you would normally use to nourish your your body 
replace with something that you're going to nourish your spiritual well-being in prayer. And in that obedience, in that obedience, God will, will, will honor that. And I believe that He will, because the Scripture says that He does. So, but again, going back to our praying in public, Jesus Himself clearly prayed in public, and as did His disciples. So clearly where Jesus addresses here is the heart and the intention of praying and indicates the bulky majority of our praying efforts should indeed be in private. This is where we should spend the majority of our time in prayer is in our private time. And I would say for many of us, our prayer in private is very different than what we would pray in public. There are things I would certainly pray in private with the Lord than I would ever pray in front of you folks. Maybe, you know, concerning myself, very personal things, or maybe the way I would pray for individuals would be different in private than what I can do here in public. The more personal, we raise our most personal concerns to the Lord. I'm not going to belabor. I, I have some notes here about corporate prayer. I think I'm not going to belabor that anymore. I think we've spent quite a bit of time, you know, discussing what corporate prayer looks like and the benefits of it. And even my wife was so gracious as to as to express her, uh, you know, what, the benefits she has seen from this. And I can't tell you how much, <laughs> how encouraging that is to hear that and to know that. And I, I have to tell you, I, I see the same thing. And that's the reason why we even began to 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 walk in this as elders in this church. But I just want to point out that the power of corporate prayer is not in the idea of collective voices, but rather collective faithfulness and obedience. So again, we do not pray like the hypocrites do, putting on our prayer on display, but rather close the door behind you in private. It also means that we may need to find a place that we can use for prayer. You know, prayer rooms and things like that, or even just a, a simple bench or just a spot, a place, um, wherever it may be, beside your bed, uh, sitting in your car, whatever the case may be, a place that you can identify as a place that when I am in this place, I can pray and remove the, the distractions and things like that. Matthew 6, 7 through 8, yet again. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So just the rambling on and also the repetition and things like that. And clearly, here he's, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about pagans. He's talking about pagan practices, and they have this practice of repetition and calling God's name or whatever God they're praying to in an effort to conjure or evoke that God or, or evoke that power, whatever that they're, they're praying for. Consider the chants or even the, the sound that Eastern mystics use for meditation. You know, The idea, these practices desire to clear the mind. They're trying to clear the mind and, and, and level it out so that they can, to them it is, or what they claim, it is gives them the ability to find a path to enlightenment. What it does, it clears the way for demons is what it really does. That's what it really does. It, it 
clears the way for demonic thoughts to enter. By clearing your mind and clearing these things out and, and, and having no thought whatsoever, that's why we are to meditate on God's Word. By filling our hearts and our minds with God's Word, there is no room for those things. And I be assured that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not to be conjured or evoked in any way. We struggle not against flesh. There's a struggle, I believe, that many have with praying or seeing its relevance and its effectiveness is that we do not consider the reality of spiritual realm over the physical. Jeremy hit on this a bit earlier, right? This idea that if we could, if we could pull back the tapestry and see the full, the, the, the fullness of the spiritual realm, we would, uh, well, we'd probably have to go change our drawers is probably the reality of it. I mean, really, it's, it's, it would be an amazing thing to see. But we only know these things generally by faith. Now, we can sometimes see their effect, right? But we don't understand or appreciate the reality of the spiritual realm over the physical realm. Because consider this, who is God? What is God? He is spirit, is he not? Did he not speak the physical world into existence? So which existed first, the spiritual realm or the physical? Well, clearly the spiritual realm. So it is the spiritual realm that has more real than it is even the physical. But we have a hard time connecting this dot or even appreciating this because we obviously live in the physical world. So if we see a nail, if we see a nail, what do we do? We pick up a hammer and we hit the nail. Physical problem, physical solution. That's all we can seem to understand and, and realize. It comes natural to us to understand a physical problem requires a physical solution. So it would be odd for us to consider praying about that nail. Obviously, the nail represents obstacles and trouble or whatever else in our life that, that we're having to continue with and deal with, you know. But I had thought about, you know, walk out on my deck and there's a nail sticking up. What do I do? I go grab a hammer and I knock that nail down. But when we see the nails in our lives, we might want to just not quite reach for the hammer just yet. Right? Don't reach for the hammer. So difficult for us to think about praying again for the nail. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I'm going to say it again. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Later on in verse 18, also of Ephesians 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And also in 2 Corinthians, specifically 10, chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, hear me now, 
speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive, every what captive? Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This is why our prayers, much like worship and whatever we do that brings glory to the name of God, is in fact warfare. You know, we talk about spiritual warfare. A lot of people get jazzed up. Is what they want to do. They want to go out there and start punching demons in the face. Sounds cool, right? We we see all these Middle Earth movies where we go out with the with the big swords and all these Middle Earth weapons and fight the 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 I don't know whatever they call all the different creatures in, in these various movies. These demonic looking things. So we get this idea. That's how we fight. We're going to pick up our sword. What is our sword? It's the word. And what is our shield? It's faith. Right? A helmet. Salvation. Right? Our weapons are not carnal. They're not physical things. But we can see these things often manifest in the physical world. We have to learn to think of what we see in the physical world as results of things that are actually happening spiritually. So when you think about what drives people to do evil things and to live in sin, consider the spiritual forces behind them. Consider that what drives people are evil thoughts and ideas. Right? Stop thinking of it as an evil nail. Start thinking of it as an evil thought and idea driving the nail. What's pushing the nail up? Consider that what drives people are evil thoughts and ideas that are raised up against the knowledge of God. That is why we must lift up and proclaim His truth in the public square, and that's why we pray. Stop grabbing the hammer. More is done in the kingdom of God by prayer of the saints than any other action we take. Yes, we know we plan to do missions. We plan to go places and do all these sort of things. And they are absolutely important. They are what, they, what we are called to do as, as churches and as God's people. But that is why it occurred to us as elders here that as we start this new body or this new venture, or some may call this full-hearted attempt, <laughs> as some might say, whatever you want to call it, but it came clear to us that we had to start with a culture of prayer. We had to build and develop a culture of prayer. It wasn't until that foundation has been laid and has been, and has been secured before we can begin to step out on anything else. If we try to do anything else without that, it would absolutely fall. Or at the very least not be God-honoring. And if it's not God honoring, then guess what? It fails. There's a lot of huge, huge, huge churches that got millions of dollars in their bank account. They're absolute failures. Sad to say. Absolute failures. I'm not saying which ones they are. You decide that. <laughs> but I'm convinced they're there. So. 
with this prayer, we also pray and we want to talk about praying with expectation, right? That's, that's again, praying with expectation. When we pray, what do we expect and why do we expect it? But before I go into that, I want to address a thing that is often referred to as humility. The idea of prayer is spiritual warfare and is worship. Then we add the expectation and so on. Humility is often overlooked. And of course, Scripture tells us to be humble and, and, and that sort of thing. But let me address something very, very specific here. Let me ask you this. Have, who here or has, has or has heard someone shy away from prayer saying something like, God, not, God does not have time to hear me? I've done it. I've done it. I've shied away because God doesn't really have time. Or I am too small or I am too insignificant. The Lord clearly has too big of issues to attend. And the most concerning is simply that God is too busy. It is often viewed as some form of, or, or it's even often an attempt to be humble or some sort of humility like, no, 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 God doesn't worry about me. God's got bigger things to worry about. He needs to worry about peace in the Middle East. He needs to worry about, you know, um, balancing the budget. I don't know. Whatever you think is, 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 is pertinent in the world and that God does not need to be concerned with little old me. Just don't worry about me, God. I'll be okay. I'll just sit here and muddle through. So this comes across as humble, but it's not. It's actually very presumptuous at, at the least. It can even be a bit arrogant to say this. But in reality, it's an absolute offense to God for you to say this. It is actually, or can be, an outright attack on God's nature to say this. Let me explain. Now, some would counter this type of this attitude. If someone says, oh, you know, God doesn't have time for me or, or, or you know, God needs to be concerned with other things bigger than me, don't need to worry about me, that sort of thing. And someone counters this by saying, well, well, no, but God delights in hearing from his children or that you are so special that it would hurt God for you not to speak to him. And the idea that God is always willing to make time to hear you, you're like, no, 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 God, God will make time to hear you. God, God can always do that. He can handle this, right? Now, some of these ideas may actually be true. I'm not discounting the fact that God certainly most absolutely delights when we come to Him. There's no doubt about that. God desires to have His children bring their, their problems to Him. He desires it. He wants, wants that, to have, that to have happen. So those statements are true, but the problem is they do not address one of these other aspects, and that is to say that God is too busy. That God is too busy. Who in here knows what it's like to be busy? <laughs> the hands go up everywhere. Come on, people. We all know what busy is like, don't we? And we all know what busy and we all know what busy is. And and you know, before um, you know, we had answering machines and call waiting and things like that. Yes, that time did exist at one time, kids. Um before we had those sort of things, when someone would call the house and someone's on the line, guess what did they get? Busy signal. I bet all of us could probably mock or make the sound of that stupid busy signal. We all know that sound quite well. It's it's a busy signal. Or 
I, and I think about when I'm sitting there, <laughs> and I'm gonna pick at my wife a little bit here. Uh, but you know, I'm sitting there in in my in my study or in my uh, my office, and I'm doing work. I'm working, right? That's where I work, and this is where I'm I'm doing stuff for my job. And she's got something going on, and she calls my name, and she comes in there to ask me a question. And for about the first thirty seconds, she realizes he's not hearing a darn word I'm saying. And she was right. Uh, she, she has to stop and look at me. And said, "Are you are you even hearing me right now?" And I have to say, "Nope." Not hearing a word you're saying. Why? Because my brain is locked in work mode. It's it's my gears are turning in work mode, and I have to stop them. I have to reverse them a little bit, take it out of gear, kick it over into wife mode or in husband mode, and say, "All right, now you tell me." Yeah, she she'll do this to me. Like, look at me, look at me. Make sure you're looking at me right now. Okay, I'm sorry. Why? Because my brain is busy. It's busy, focused on this kind of thing right here, and I cannot. Shift gears that easy. I'm not a multitasker. Never have been. Right? So the, this idea of being busy. So to be busy means to have reached our capacity to take in more knowledge and more thought processes. In other words, I can't do anything else. I have to stop what I'm doing here so that I can focus over here. And we know that God is infinite, omnipresent, omniscient, fully sovereign. God knows the future because he decrees the future. Nothing occurs to God, nothing surprises God, and He does not grow weary or tired. God is 100% of the time full and utter control. Nothing escapes Him or surpasses His understanding. So if we have a true understanding of God, we can never, ever consider Him busy. It's not even possible. It would be against His very nature and His character to be busy. And I say that, I feel someone needs to hear that specific thing, that there is no such thing. So please, let's rid this thought process and this nonsense from our minds. Let's just, please, please, there is no such thing. Because it says in Matthew 10, the hairs on your head are numbered. There is no, even the might smallest, minute detail of your life that God doesn't already know. Doesn't already know. Philippians 4, 6-7 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. I will say that again. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we lay our faith in this, if we lay our knowledge in this, if we lay our understanding in this, the peace of God will guard us from these anxieties and from these difficulties in these worries ask matthew 7 excuse me 7 through 9 ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds into him who knocks it will be opened for what man is there among you whom when he asks when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone 
And then again in Matthew 21, 21 through 22, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So if we don't know what this particular last scripture was about, Jesus that morning had gotten up, he was hungry, and they were walking, went to a fig tree, and there was no fruit on the tree. So he cursed the tree, and it withered and died. And his disciples were rather amazed by what they saw, and they said, well, how can we do this? And so he explains this to them by believing and by asking these things in prayer and even gives them the example of the mountain being moved to the sea. Now we know that the fig tree withering was representative of the uh, wicked generation that did not bear any, any fruit. But let's sit on this a moment. This is often twisted to understand that it is through our power of belief or our power of faith. You've got to hear me now. This, it's, it's, the, 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 the devil's in the details here, so to speak. But it's often twisted to understand that through our power of belief, our power of faith, that we can accomplish whatever we see fit. So it's about how much faith, so how much faith or belief does it take, right? So it's, if, if we believe in that it's the power of our faith and the power of our belief that accomplishes these things, then how much belief and how much faith do we require? And if it says you have, if you have faith, well, faith in what exactly? And also it says, in all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Well, believing in what? Exactly. That's the questions we, we need to ask about scriptures like this. None of this statement qualifies an amount or quantity of faith or belief or even the quality of your faith or belief. But it is no longer a question of how much or how good it is, but rather into what it is placed. You understand? John 4, 2 says, we're going to get in more detail in this, but John 4, 2, excuse me, James 4, 2. Sorry. Um, you don't have that up here either, I don't think. But James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now this seems to fly in the face of, of Calvinist, doesn't it? And our way of thinking, because it implies and tells us that things do not happen because we do not ask for them to happen. And again, this gets twisted in the little God's theory and, and, and other theologies and saying that things happen in our prayers because we have the power to make them happen. Having been created in God's image, we are smaller yet godlike, being having our own power to create. Or with Eastern mysticism, the idea that we put good energy into the universe and by being one with the absolute or with God, we would receive good back in the form of our deepest desires. All of that, of course, is hogwash. So let's take the scripture now. You ask not because, excuse me, you do not have because you do not ask. Let's put this in its full context. Go to James 4, 1 through 6. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteress. You, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So while James gives a great deal of warning and qualification to the statement, the scripture does still yet point out, you do not have because you do not ask. This again is us coming to God with our our desires and our supplications and our difficulties and, and our problems and these sort of things. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you are asking with wrong motives. This comes with a process of sanctification. This is why we spend so much time in prayer. This is why we have to pers persevere through these sort of things so that we can learn and that we are changed through this process, the process of sanctification. This is perseverance. This is where the ongoing prayer of the faithful works as much or really more to change the heart of those who are praying. So we pray, hear me out, so we pray to the Father who gives good gifts with boldness yet with humility, with faith and believing, but not in our own power. It is not how loud we pray or how much we can emote or even how well our arguments are structured or worded or elegance of our speech. It is our faithfulness to His Word, obedience to His Spirit and submitting of our heart and mind to His knowledge and ways. Why would God answer the prayer of believer if that prayer directly was against His law and character? Consider that. And we're still building on the same prayer with expectation. So we're still getting there. Let's consider the prayer of a righteous man. The second half of James 5, 5, 16. You don't have it up there yet, I don't think. Maybe you can bring it up 5, 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I want to talk about this a little bit as well. Because most of us, when we hear this scripture, there's a particular version that we probably hear the most. Right? And it's the King James. The King James translated this as the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Who all remembers that version more so than, than many of the others? Same, same here. So the King James translates this into fervent prayer. It gives the idea of qualification to the prayer as one being emotionally charged, right? Because I even asked, uh, I, Spoke to my wife yesterday and said, So when I ask you, what does fervent prayer mean to you? What does this what, what does that imply to you? She gave me an answer. And so then I even went online and looked it up. So what is the actual definition of fervent? And it's this idea of excitement and 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 an emotionally charged type of type of attitude toward prayer. But there's a problem. So we look at the original Greek in this scripture. The word that is used there for effective or even where they put fervent effectual prayer 
is the word energeo. And it happens to be the exact same word used for accomplish. So the word ineffective, or where they would translate the word fervent and also accomplish, is the same Greek word. And when I look into what that word means, it simply means the act of doing or something being done. Or to be doing something. Okay, so let me let me just that was a whole bunch of words I threw at you. Let's break this down a little bit. So the fundamental idea here is that the working or action of a righteous man praying accomplishes or does much. This is to say that it is not how the righteous man prays, but rather it is that the righteous man who is praying, and not even so much what what the righteous man prays, but the actions of a righteous man doing the praying. In other words, it is the righteous person praying that accomplishes much. So being obedient to the Spirit to do it, even if you are not good at it or fully know how to, look, God will work that out in time. This is, again, is why we continue. This is why we pray in, in, in corporate prayer and groups and all these sort of things that we can learn. So it's not about how well you pray. It is the obedience to pray that God honors. And God will work out the rest as we go. So my encouragement to you, again, is simply start praying, speaking. Let's read scriptures in James 5 in its entirety again. And this is 13 through 18, excuse me. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone joyful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. We spend much time focused on this each Sunday. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So the scripture, the effective prayer of the righteous man is right here about forgiveness of sin and healing. Forgiveness of sin and healing. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months then he prayed again and the sky poured rain on the earth and produced its fruits so the scripture here walk through this a little bit tells us to pray in all occasions is anyone among you suffering then he must pray are you suffering physically, emotionally, then pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. And may your, this is me speaking, may your joy be 
full in your prayers. May your prayers be full of praise to the Father. Now, it's easy. It's easy to see God glorified in your praises. But He is also, and maybe more so, glorified in the prayer of your supplication and petitions. That is, your times of trouble. The times that you are asking God for help. He is also, and maybe even more so, glorified in those times. Just as He is in your praises for Him, bring your supplication Bring your supplications to God may not seem glorifying, but I want you to consider this as a parent. Does it not give you pleasure when your child knows not only they can come to you, but they can trust you and believe that you can help them with their problems? That they know you can direct them wisely and provide comfort and wisdom by bringing our supplications to the Father. We show Him our dependence on Him. We seek His wisdom and His comfort Coming to Him first in our distress brings Him glory. So to do so without fear of troubling or burdening Him. As we said before, you cannot overburden God. You, you, you got burdens? Load Him up. Load Him up. You cannot overdo this. He is the Creator. What can you possibly have going on in your life that is beyond His ability, His grace, or His wisdom? Consider anything else would be a disgrace. By refusing to do so, we are saying He lacks the ability to hear us out and to have grace with us. We are placing a limit on God by refusing to bring things to Him. Everything. And it brings Him glory and satisfaction for us to do it. I mean, I can remember the times that my kids would come to me and seek out my counsel. There was a tremendous amount of joy in that. Even when I wasn't exactly sure how to answer them yet. It was joyful for my, for my kids to come to me and ask. So I can only imagine what the Heavenly Father must feel like when we come to Him and ask. So again in James 5, 14 through 15, If anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the Lord... And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So this scripture and others like it cause a great deal of division in the church, and it seems presumptuous to pray for healing and to expect it. But I would tell you the presumption comes in when we pray for healing and demand it. That's that's where we are being presumptuous. And I say this because this is a very much a prevailing attitude in the American church today is to is to uh you know demand certain things in our prayer and and to uh declare certain things within our prayer and by and we know only the hand of God and by his spirit can heal right we know that right we see healing we don't give that credit to anything else but the hand of God right to the spirit of God so by demanding declaring healing we demand and will we are saying that we are demanding and we are going to wield the Spirit of God ourselves. That's a dangerous place to be, ladies and gentlemen. So, But to expect something because we have faith and belief is very different from demanding and declaring something. I think some would say that they are declaring something out of faith and belief. So they're saying, I am so full of faith, I am so full of belief that I can now declare it. 
because I am full of faith. But what they actually attempt to do is fully qualify and solidify their belief by declaring and demanding. They're trying to prove they have all this faith and they have this full. I think of like a, 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 a cylinder. You know, if you imagine the cylinder full of, of, of water and that water would represent faith or something like that line and, and, and we have a, a line down here at the bottom. And that line, when we get enough faith built up to there, well, then I can simply go to God and pray, God, please do, please do this. God, I really would kind of like if you have time, you know, to look into this problem or, or whatever, you know, kind of this wimpish type of, of prayer and, and not fully understanding that God desires you to bring things. And if we fill that up a little bit further, then I can maybe pray a little bit more boldness. I got a little bit more faith, so now I can pray here. And then if, when it comes up to the very top and it's up there at the brim, I'm now full. Now I can declare and I can proclaim things to be on my own. That's not what the Scripture tells us at all. There is no qualification of fullness of faith. It says to have faith and to do things in faith and not to be double-minded in your faith and not to be double-minded. It means to be secured in your faith. is to have it or to not to have it. Does that make sense? Let's go on. Let's keep this. Let me keep this on a, on a, on a simple level. When we pray expecting, we do not. Excuse me. We pray expecting, we do not. We do so not believing in our ability to pray well. All right. The depth of our faith or our belief or the power of our words or even the faith in the power of our words. That's another thing that is often taught is that words have power, right? And they do. But we do not place our faith in the power of words. That's, that's the wrong place for our faith to be rested on. So this idea is as long as you believe how powerful your words are, then your words will now carry out power and do things. And that's not what Scripture says. Again, remember I told you earlier, the key here is not how much or the quality of your faith. It is where you have placed your faith and have done so unwaveringly. Okay? So rather praying in expectation because we know God is a good Father who gives good gifts. We are praying, believing in His faithfulness, not ours. And we are faithful by believing in His faithfulness. So I don't place my faith in the fact that I am faithful. I place my faith in knowing that He is faithful, and, and unchangingly so. So there's no, my point is there's no quality about me that qualifies my faith. My faith is simply believing in what He has said He will do and do it without double-mindedness. So I believe and have faith that God is good and God will will and does good things. And of course, the qualifier, and my kids will be quick to correct me on this because I believe I've taught them this. When we say that God is good and God does good things and all these sort of things, that we must define what is good by God, not the other way around. So we must qualify what we consider good by what brings glory to God, as Trey was saying earlier this morning. James 1, 5 through 8. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously 
and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. Without doubting what? Doubting the Lord. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. So my faith is rested on the knowledge and understanding of God's nature. And that God will do what God says He will do. And God will do what is good for those who love Him, as we see in Romans 8, 28-31. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, and that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then shall we say, then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So we pray with faith and expectation. Always submitting to His will. But expectation is born of our belief and faith in God's nature and desire for His elect. And I almost forget that we're talking about James 5 still. And going back to verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, then he must call forth the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore him, the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Why must we go to the elders and must they anoint the oil? Because to do so is faithful to the word. And in doing so, we have faith the Lord will raise them up by the prayer offered in faith. And also, if he has, continue on, if he has committed sin, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We forget the qualifier here, recognizing our sins against the Lord, confessing them and praying for one another in them so that you may be healed. Confession and repentance needs to be a part of our daily, of our daily walk. So what happens when we pray for illness and sickness? And as we were talking about earlier this morning, you know, praying for, for, for the difficult times and difficult things in our life, we see our loved ones hurting and, and, and these sort of things, right? Uh, I keep picking on my wife this morning, but you know she's, she's had this issue with her foot and has reared its ugly head lately, causing her a great deal of pain and discomfort. And so in faith, I anoint it with oil and pray over it. And guess what happened? It still hurts. In fact, it may have been hurting worse after I prayed for it than it did before, if I'm honest. So what do I do? Well, we're going to pray over her here 
We're going to have the elders anoint her with oil. And we're going to pray again. And then we're going to pray again. And then we're going to pray again. And we're going to continue to pray. We're going to persevere through until something the Lord gives us or does something. Maybe either we get a, a revelation or an understanding of the situation and what the Lord is doing to us through that, that situation. I can remember the times that we have experienced in our marriage, the difficult times we've gone through, and, and we've always circled back to putting Christ in the center of those things. And I believe that has always been our anchor and why we are who we are today. But there are times we, we persevere through those things and God didn't take the hard times away. He didn't take the sicknesses away. He isn't taking the illness away. But He has used it to cause us to be closer and to always put Him in focus in our life. So we got to consider these things that when we pray about these things and we must press into these sort of things. It's not necessarily that God will take away the illness, but that, that God is maybe using the illness, maybe using the event to draw us closer. And then we are thankful for that. We are thankful in all occasions. So I could have prayed for that foot and just simply said, well, it didn't work. God's a liar. And walk away. Disheartened. But I have faith in what God's Word says that He will do good. And I don't know where the good is in all of this all the time, but I don't need to because I have faith in Him. But I am expecting God to do something, either to heal that foot or to teach me and her something in it. He will do something. I promise I'll leave you alone the rest of the service, baby. <laughs> so praying unceasing in all occasions. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here and in many ways of Scripture, is the clear, it is clear the Lord loves a joyful heart. He not, only he not only desires it and delights in it, He really commands us of it, really. We're commanded to come to Him with joy. So the Lord definitely loves a joyful heart. And it is something that a, 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 something that a Christian, especially a mature Christian, should be exhibiting. And God does not like it, does not like, nor is it right to come to the Lord with a complaining Think about God scolding the Israelites in the desert where they complained about the food and these sort of things. He, he scolded them. Now, He did give them provision. He gave them manna and, and these other provisions, but He scolded them for their complaining. In fact, when He led them all the way across the desert and into the land of Canaan, because of their lack of faith and because of their wickedness as a generation, what did He do? He wiped them all out and it took 40 years to do it. But he said, you will not partake in the promised land. You will not partake here because of your complaining in ungrateful and unthankful spirits. Also think about Job. You know, the Lord brought certain things against Job or, or allowed certain things to be brought against Job. We spoke about that last Sunday. And 
Job leveled certain uh, accusations toward God because of his confusion and misunderstanding about things. And the Lord scolded him for it, set him back straight. So we know it's an ungodly trait, but as Piper points out, there's a problem. We do have a complaining heart, don't we? Quite often we do. That's just back to the matter. We are constantly working to submit it otherwise, and we are constantly working to, to cause it to conform Sometimes we get stuck. So we work to submit our hearts and minds to the knowledge of God, but at times we find ourselves stuck. We might find ourselves angry at God, much like Job, confused and unsettled, maybe a season of unbelief or, or, or even a season of lack of faith. We, we, we go through these things as Christians and as believers. So we have this idea that we must come to the Lord with a facade, right? Because we're not supposed to come to the Lord with a complaining heart, so I must pretend the complaining heart is not there. But we know God is here to help us with these things also. We also, the Lord already knows our heart anyway. So if you go to the Lord with this facade pretending, you know, hey, Lord, oh, Lord, I'm just so thankful and so this and so that. And on the inside, the little guy on the inside is like, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. So we put on this facade for God. Because we know that we're not supposed to show this side of ourselves. We're not supposed to come to God with, with anger in these sort of things. So, so what do we do? So we have this idea that we come to the Lord of the facade, but know God is here to help us even with these things. Now you are better off coming to God with a sin of anger or even a complaint toward Him than you do to add to this sin of double-mindedness with hypocrisy. Consider that. Yes, it is sinful to come to God in anger. Yes, it is sinful to come to God with a complaining heart. That's why God gives us grace. That's why God has grace with us. And we are better off coming to God with, an, with, with our anger and our frustrations toward Him and toward our, our struggle with His Word and these sort of things then we are to also come as a hypocrite in pretending we're not. Now, obviously, as we have preached and preached and preached, we know who we're coming to. We're coming to God the Father. We're coming to also God the Creator. We are coming to the great I Am. We're coming to the one that He told the Israelites, if you even touch this mountain, you will be struck dead. Let's don't forget who we're talking to in these type of situations. But my point is, my point is, we find ourselves absolutely stuck. We find ourselves stymied by these emotions. Bring them to Him. Do it humbly, mind you. Do it humbly. But God will help you through those things as well. That's where His grace, we think about Paul, when he would pray for about the thorn in his side, and what does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient. And Paul had to simply eat that. You know, Job brought to God because he had been, Job was being accused of being a sinner. And that's the reason all these things have befallen him because you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. You must have done something really bad. And he hadn't. 
Why was Job actually ultimately had these things fall on him? Now, we haven't studied these words, so if you don't know, you don't know. But spoiler alert, the reason that these things had even befallen Job was simply to glorify God. Because Job's attitude and Job walking through these things, even though he struggled with it, at the end of it, God was glorified through all of it. So it was all ultimately for God's own glory. Remember, God's grace is efficient. He can deal with your sin. In fact, it has already been dealt with. But to, but to get past this, we have to work our way through in prayer and in time in the Word, seeking counsel from fellow believers. Let's not forget about this aspect of this. Seeking counsel from fellow believers. We find ourselves in this. Seek out fellow believers to help us walk through it. People who are mature and who have experienced these things. And, and also, of course, the elders. That's what we're here for. It's not something to be bottled up and hidden and pretended it's not there. Again, that leads us to a sin of hypocrisy if we try to do that. So while we do it humbly, carefully, and very thoughtfully, we can come to God with our complaints. But with the expectation that He will help us better understand on what is that or what is it that we are stuck on. And not necessarily to take away the thing that we're complaining about, but to help us learn how to deal with it. To learn how to how to understand it and and to be reconciled with it, if you will. And to pray without ceasing. Verse 17. We've talked about prayer a lot over the past weeks, and we've talked about praying in our closet. We've talked about praying in in you know public prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Um, but what does praying without ceasing even look like? This ad this idea of walking around with an attitude of prayer. We often think about prayer as a, as a formulated thing. In some ways, it, it it can be, but certainly we have a model and a pattern for prayer in the Lord's Prayer. But what does praying without ceasing look like? Praying, in short, is saying something intentional to God. In other words, it is something that we are trying to convey to God intentionally. In my first sermon on the subject, I mentioned that we pray to the Father by the Spirit in the name of, I mistyped that, by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. But a prayer can be as simple as, Lord, please help me right now. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn out, thoughtful thing. Just, Lord, help me. That's a prayer. You just prayed. All right? Um, and saying that just before you go into a particular situation, or or it can be seen as a blessing. Lord, thank you for this blessing. Something just suddenly just fell in your lap, or something a door just opened. You say, "Thank you, Lord. You just prayed. You just prayed." And this constant attitude of praying, and and as we enter situations, before we, the phone rings, Lord, help me with this. Help me with this. Lord, help me with that. Lord, thank you for that conversation I just had. Lord, thank you for that conversation, Lord, and, and, and help me understand and help me deal with what, just, what, what was just spoken about. Again, the idea of we want to pick up the hammer and hit the nail, don't we? Pray. And as you answer the phone, Lord, help me speak well just before we get, enter a, a conversation or something along those lines. We, we constantly have this attitude of prayer. 
What if we find ourselves conflicted and not sure how to even approach the Father? Maybe we're dealing with some sort of sin or, or an emotion, confusion. And we spoke a minute about you know, dealing with anger and, and confusion toward the Lord. Um, which I'm sure we all have had to deal with and wrestle with in our walk. We can also speak to the Holy Spirit or to the Son. Doesn't the Scripture say He sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes? Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So we have an intercessor. We have a mediator in 1 Timothy 5.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we, we have a mediator there to pray on our behalf. Right? And so we can speak to the Lord. We can speak even to the Holy Spirit, particularly in these times when we're not exactly sure how to even come to the Father. I, I, I know my mind's not right. I can't approach the throne right now. I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. Holy Spirit is the comforter. And, and, and the Lord Jesus is, is our mediator. So we can come to them and also ha- ask them for help. A time of distress, words cannot be found, or at a time of weakness, and do not know what we ought to pray. Again, in those those moments of speechlessness, we just don't know what to say or how to say it. Romans eight twenty six through twenty eight. In the same way, the Holy Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, we have a limited understanding of God. We have a limited understanding. Our, 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 our minds are not infinite as His, and we don't have the broadness of understanding. So sometimes our prayers, our words are insufficient. Sometimes there aren't words to express what needs to be expressed, and that is what the, one of the things the Holy Spirit will help us with. He intercedes for us in our stead in those times. And he says even with groans, it means without words, without it's, it's something that can only be expressed and not spoken, at least not in our own understanding. And I'll end in verse 28 there. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. So the start of developing, and yes, it must be developed over time, is to simply start, if only for a minute or two. You say, well, in no time I am yawning or I'm distracted. You know, we're trying to pray and we find ourselves getting sleepy or, or you know, swirl, distracted. Or there is no time of the day. Well, then start with moments. Start with just moments. Praying in moments, if that's what you're able to do right now. But pressing toward the minutes and then even the hours in prayer. 
And even to simply start with, Lord, just help me. If nothing else. But reach out to Him in prayer. And that's where I'm going to close with this. So, church, I hope that we are encouraged and know and understand that our prayer is a multifaceted thing. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't need to be complicated. It's actually very simple and it's very crucial and critical to the to the Christian life. Not only is it how we again express ourselves to the Lord, but it is through our prayer, it is through our prayer and God answering them that we receive revelation and that we receive illumination to His words and to understand our situation. And corporate prayer is how we, we gather and we share in like-mindedness for the Lord. So I encourage you, uh, church, to seek out to strengthen your, your prayers and to uh, seek the Lord's face in your prayers and in our prayers. As we have said many times, He is delighted to hear them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise You and I thank You again, Lord, for this time that we have gathered in Your name, Father. Lord, I pray that You would uh, bless Your people, dear Lord, that they are edified, and encouraged, Lord, by your words, dear Father. But, Lord, that ultimately, Lord, you are glorified. Lord, may your people earnestly desire to seek, dear Father, and to understand the joy, Lord, that you get when your children come to you, Father, in prayer and lifting up all aspects and details of our lives to you, Father, that we know that you are a good and loving Father, Lord. And Heavenly Father, again, we in all things praise you and worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.